0: I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Isaiah chapter number 54 this morning. If you're visiting with us, we generally taken it as our task to make it through the book of Mark. We're almost there. Um, I trust that we'll return to that next week and over the course of the next month, we'll finish that up and then Lord willing, we will uh, prepare our hearts to take on a new task and a new book. Um, and I'm planning on the book of Philippians right now uh, for a number of reasons that I'll, I'll tell you in the, in the future. Um, but this morning, we divert somewhat from our task once again, um, in part because it's Mother's Day. Um, and it's interesting when you do that um, and you preach a topical message, the danger of doing that is having in your mind what you want to say and then trying to find a, the, the text that's appropriate. Um, and there is a sense in which I've done that before. I remember one of the first times I ever preached. It was very early on, and um, yesterday, as I was remembering back, I thought a certain year, but it's even more years—probably 12 or 13 years now—in um, my home church. And we had a New Year's Eve service, and what they would do is they would do what they call popcorn preaching, and they would have young men stand up and preach for 10 or 15 minutes, and let us preach on whatever we want, and and, um, and they would go till midnight. It would be non-stop and um, I can remember thinking New Year's Eve I need a good sermon and um, wasn't much of an expository preacher at the time really didn't know how to preach to be honest with you I'm just following the example of men that I had known and loved and and um, anyway I got this idea I'll preach on that great passage you know without a vision the people perish that'll be good for New Year's Get a new vision for the rest of the year, for a new year. I remember getting to study that text and I thought, that doesn't mean what I think it means at all. (laughs) Um, That vision is there synonymous, uh, really, with the Word of God. And that word perish means, it could also be literally translated um, uh, without restraint. And it's a contrast, the next I believe it says something along the lines of happy is he who obeys the law. He's talking about the law of God and where the Word of God is not there. Um, when the Word of God is not there, there is, the people are without restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. And um, I thought that's an even better sermon to preach. And that's what you do, you know, as a preacher, as a pastor. You, know, you, you come to a text and you may have something in mind, but, but once you begin to study the text, um, you, 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 either, you either preach the text or you abandon the text. But you don't use the text to preach whatever or to utilize it for whatever you desire. In doing so, you abuse the text. God's message is always the message that ought to be propagated. Um, And it's always the most fruitful of messages. So I came to this text with somewhat of an idea of encouraging mothers and and maybe in an indirect type of way. Um, I'm not sure that what I had wanted in the beginning is what will be today, but nevertheless, we will preach the text. And pray that the Lord will use it in your life and in mine um, to make us more like Jesus Christ, strengthen our faith, and just unveil to us the glories and majesties of Jesus Christ. This has been such an encouraging text to me this week, I'll be honest with you. Um, But possibly not a Mother's Day sermon. Nevertheless, if you're a mother in Christ, the sermon is for you. May you see Jesus Christ and may He overwhelm your soul with His loving kindness and produce in you a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory as we take a few moments just to meditate upon Him. So if you can and you're able, let us stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We'll pick up our reading in verse number 1. We read these words, Sing, O barren, you who have not borne. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch out curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your courts, and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when, the, when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken You, but with great mercies I will gather You. With a little wrath I hid my face from You for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on You. Says the Lord, Your Redeemer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we love You. (coughs) Father, with with everything that is in us. Um, What a great task before us, Father. To go to Your text and to honor You and to be faithful. What a sobering task it is, but what a joyful moment it is. As Father, we just totally lean on You. I don't know how to preach. Not really. I feel weak this morning. So weak. My mind is wandering. I feel like I can't even control it. That's I call on You, Father, that You would help and aid, maybe not only my own mind and heart, but the minds and hearts of those, Father, that are hearing. We come to You, Father, as a, as a frail and a fragile people. We come to You, Father, as ones who um, cannot sustain ourselves. We come to You, Father, with unrest in our souls. We come to You, Father, with things we can't control. Um and we simply throw ourselves upon you, and cast our hearts before you, who knows the secrets of men, Father. We uh, we're not here to pretend. I'm not here to pretend this morning, because I know, Father, that you know the very depths of my heart, and um, you know, Father, those caves and crevices in which I've never even, um, never even encountered in my own inner man. Um, Father, You knit me in my mother's womb. You know me in my inner man. God, You sustain me in this very moment. Um, Father, and You know how much more I need You than even I do. So help us this morning, Father, just to place ourselves at Your feet and to come to Your Word, Father, and to handle it well, to be faithful, and to receive it with the utmost joy. And Father, may You accomplish Your work in us that is not only temporal, but eternal. May we lay up treasures in heaven today, Father, as we seek um, to to, to know the glories and the majesties of Christ. Father, would You reveal Him to us in a mighty way. Father, would You make it personal and experiential. Uh, May we this morning um, feed on Christ. May we abide in Him. May Your Spirit come in full measure, Father, and shore up our weaknesses, Father, and help us to wholly lean on Christ and, um, and may we be forever transformed as a result of it. May fathers leave different, may mothers leave different, may children leave different, Father, um, because the presence of Christ is made known in His word, in prayer, in prayer, and in fellowship. Lord, we, we give this time to you now and trust you, Father, to do with it what you desire. As empty vessels, I pray, ready to be filled with the glory of Christ. Would you accomplish that by your Spirit, Father, through your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Isaiah chapter number 54 may be a more unfamiliar portion of Scripture to you. Probably the more familiar portion of Scripture would be the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter number 53. I mean, it's that glorious passage that you probably all heard if you were in church just a few weeks ago, or at least surrounding that um, crucifixion and resurrection season. It's Isaiah chapter number 53. It begins with, "...who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" For He, speaking of Christ, shall grow up before Him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. For He has no form or comeliness, and when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before His shearers is silent, So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore his sin, the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And what you see there is just a glorious canvas upon which the majesty of Christ is painted upon the darkest background that you could possibly find. And then we enter into Isaiah chapter number 54. And we may ask that great question what is the proper response? You know, that what we see here in Isaiah chapter number 54, without the break in um, chapter that you'll see. That yes, the chapters are oftentimes aids and the verses are helpful as we navigate Scripture, as we memorize God's Word, but sometimes the the, the, the divisions just need to be removed as we read God's Word. We don't need to stop and take a vacation and then come back as if it's a totally separate portion of Scripture. Sometimes it needs to be carried on and the chapters need to be merged together. I mean, I think that that's what you see here. That what you see here in Isaiah chapter fifty-four is to be born out of what we just read in Isaiah fifty-three and even previous to that in Isaiah chapter number fifty-two, and that what you have here in Isaiah chapter number fifty-four is a a, a provoking call from a holy and a loving God, and Isaiah is used as a vessel to call forth a proper response. That if you understand Isaiah 53, then this is the appropriate response. And what is that response? That response is praise. We see a prophecy that is initiated in Isaiah 52 and 53 of a coming Messiah Some seven centuries prior, Isaiah paints the picture of the gospel in some sense, maybe not in its fullness, but about as full as you can get from an Old Testament perspective. That when Christ comes, that that this is, this is the embodiment of that. That he will be one that is cast off. He will be one that is mocked and despised. He will be one that is led like a lamb to the slaughter. But he will accomplish a mighty work. And we read that um, towards the end that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Because out of his um, offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And that He will see the labor of His soul. He will be satisfied. And there will be with Him divided a portion with the great. That His spoils. That remember that as we look at Jesus Christ going to the cross, He's not a victim of social justice. Um, he's not someone that is just a, 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 a pawn in the system. He's the King of glory and all of His regal authority. Um, who bowed uh, His knee to the Father's will and voluntarily enters in, draws His sword out of His sheath and manifests His love in the most immeasurable type of way, fully in control as He takes Himself there to the cross and gives His life a ransom for many. And as He ascends to the right hand of God the Father, the sacrifice is received, the blood is accepted and as a result of that, His spoil is great. Daniel chapter 7, I'm convinced that, that, that the Son ascends to the right hand of the Father and the Father gives Him a kingdom out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. He receives in some sense the reward of His suffering. And that is a, a people. That is a bride for which He loves and is to love Him not only in time, but also all throughout um, eternity. And that that great reality... <laughs> should provoke in us a response. That so we see that prophetic word, that prophetic picture, and then we see that the appropriate response is praise. It's praise. Listen to the call. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. Uh, and that's the New King James Version. The NASB, if you have that, it, it literally says, shout for joy. It says Rejoice in the CSB. None of those are quiet words. They're words of acclamation. They're words of exclamation. They carry with them an affectionate weight. And they're the type of affections that take expression in an exuberant outburst. They are like a vessel that's filled with so much pressure that the lid is, it just eventually pops up because it cannot be contained within. And whatever is inside escapes. That's the idea. That if Isaiah 53 is true, and it is, then this is the proper response. And this is not simply their response. This is the type of response that God calls for. That's what this is. It's a call. It's actually a command. It's an imperative in the original. That God calls for this type of expression within His people as a response to the truth that's previously revealed. You might say, I don't feel that way really. Like I'm not that type of expressive person. Right now, you might not be. But trust me, one day you will. And if you don't believe me, believe God. The text is clear that one way, that one right who has a right understanding of the Gospel and its implications is to respond in an appropriate way. This might not be the only response but it's definitely an an appropriate response that is joyful adoration articulated and manifested externally that is it's public praise be to god sing shout with joy why because of isaiah chapter number 53 but these are not simple gestures of the heart, but public displays of joy and adoration because of Christ and the gospel and what he's accomplished in their hearts. Thus shout, sing, cry aloud, break forth into singing, it says. And this is not unique to this portion of Scripture. Isaiah is actually re- replete in examples of this very thing. Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 1, you read these words And in that day you will say, Oh Lord, I'll praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away. And you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I'll trust and not be afraid. For Yah the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you'll say praise the Lord. Call upon His name. Declare His deeds among the peoples. Make mention that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry and shout, it says. O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. It's the same words. Cry out and shout. This is also... Um, repeated in some form in Isaiah 14-7, Isaiah 24-14, 26-1, 30-29, 35-6, 42-10-13, 44-23, 45-8, 49-13, 52-9, here in 54, and it will culminate again in 65. That this is what you regularly see in response to the glorious reality of who God is seeing. Joy. Rejoice. Be glad. Worship is the proper response. And I understand that worship is more than just praise. But it's not less. I understand that worship is all of life and that it's service to God and it's it's understanding His weight and the gravity of His character and His nature and His works. But it's also, in some sense, um, that all of that is to grow out and spur from What God has accomplished in reality to express itself publicly. That's what worship does. Whether it's praise from the mouth or whether it's working well with the hands or whether it's leading your family well or this or that, worship is service. And in that service, it is public display. God didn't save men to be hermits locked up in caves somewhere living out their Christianity in a tent until Jesus returns. Um, the, a right understanding of the Gospel provokes men to public displays of service and worship and praise. And that's exactly what you see here. But why? Why praise Him, right? Verse, um, the, you see the prophecy continued. You see a prophecy begin in Isaiah 52 and 53. You see this enter, this break in between and a call for response. And then he goes on to to say why that should be as a personal um, response. um, Who is to praise Him? And why are they to praise Him? The prophecy continues in verse number one. Who is to praise Him? Shout for joy, He says, O barren one. You who have not travailed. Who is to praise Him, the barren woman? Um which may not sound that strange to you, but it would be to them. It would be hard to praise as a barren woman. Especially in those days. Underneath the Old Covenant, it would have been one of the greatest curses that could fall upon a family or even upon a woman. It would be almost too hard to bear. So when Isaiah, when God calls forth for a barren woman to sink, it may not settle well in the hearts of those who were truly barren. And even those that are outside and know what barrenness means. The Old Testament, um, the, the Old Covenant is tied up in fruitfulness of the womb, it's tied up in fertility, it's tied up in the, the covenant. And to lose that ability to procreate and that ability to pass on the name and that ability to possibly bring in the Messiah, that, 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 that the, the old covenant, the new covenant is attached to one who would come through a virgin womb and, and it's just old testament is just tied up in in that. So for one to be barren would have been almost a curse, um too great to bear for a for a woman and for a male and for a, a family, because they would see that as the end, and they would see that as a curse upon God, a, a curse from God. But here, there's a command to shout, and there's a command to sing, and there's a command to break forth with joy to this one who is, who is barren. So, if that's the case, why would this woman, um, why would she praise? Why should she praise? Um. Because she ends up bringing forth sons and daughters that herself do not really bring forth. She enters into the joy and labor of another. That's the idea. We could put it this way. The the, the barren woman sings not because she's fruitful, but the barren woman sings because she enters into the blessings of another person's labor. This is actually reminiscent of, of the story of Ruth. You may or may not remember, it's a a very short book, but it opens up with a dim and a grim picture. It opens up with death and famine and and, and families being pushed out of the land. And and you find Ruth that's a widower. And it's a picture of of cursing. And it's a picture of barrenness. And at some point, she commits herself to her mother-in-law. She commits herself to Naomi, and particularly Naomi's God. And along the way, God just pours out his blessing and even blesses Ruth and Boaz with a with a um, with a child. And in Ruth chapter four and verse number thirteen, you read of of Boaz and Ruth actually um, having a child. But, 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 but Ruth falls off the scene and, and Naomi actually seems to be um, the partaker of the blessings of that child. And they break forth in song, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may His name be famous in Israel. And may He be to you a restorer of life and a nurser of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven sons who has born Him. Then Naomi took the child and laid her on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor a woman gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi they called his name Obed and his father of Jesse and the father of David. And for all intents and purposes, it seems that in some way, Naomi becomes a mother to the child in some fashion. I don't, I don't understand all that's going on in that text. But what you see is you see not only Naomi, but this community um, coming together and rejoicing in the blessing of labors that they did not have to um, labor in. That God is telling us here that there is a barren woman that should rejoice because she is about to enter into another's labor. Her curse will be lifted, but it won't be lifted in necessarily fruitfulness of her own, but in the fruitfulness of another. That that, that, that Particularly speaking about Messiah's labor, that this is a promise of the new covenant. That this is uh, without a doubt referring or giving a picture of Sarah you remember Sarah and Abraham, or Abram at the time. He's given a promise that they would bear a son. But she's barren. She's older in age. It's not happening. So what do they do? They, 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 they take it upon themselves and by their own strength and their own flesh and their own arm, they seek to, 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 to facilitate the promise um, by their own ingenuity. So they get a Hagar. This 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 text is directly referenced in Galatians chapter four. Paul quotes this, saying that there that, that Sarah represents and Hagar represents two covenants, an old covenant and a new covenant. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion or uh, Mount Zion, the, the people of God under the old covenant, and the people of God under the new covenant. The reality is is that under the old covenant, under Hagar, um, the, 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 there was there was a, a seed that was born under bondage. But under Sarah, there would be a a seed that is produced by her, but not by her. That that all those that would come to her, would come to her, or that that would come to Christ, would come by faith, and they would be children of Abraham, he says, in that way. That the true seed is not, uh, that the true seed prophesied in those covenants is not necessarily Israel, although God pours out a physical blessing upon them and gives them land. But the true promise is going to be to a spiritual seed. They will enter into the blessings of another's um, by, by by the uh, even though they are unable to produce. That's the idea. Under the old covenant, there wasn't a person saved, it was barren. When I say the under the old covenant, that doesn't mean that in the Old Testament no one was saved. No one was saved by the Old Covenant. No one was saved by Moses. No one was saved by the law. There's nobody in this world that has ever lived in any generation or even now or ever to come that will live the life that is demanded by the law outside of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. There is no man that could have his own labors create fruitfulness of a womb. There's no man that could save a man. There's no prophet great enough. There's no preacher eloquent enough. There's no skill or or technology um, elevated enough To to, to climb to the heights of saving men. This is a labor. That if we are, um, that that this is a blessing. That if we are to enter in, we'll be entered in only and solely, completely by the work of another. And that is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's the idea. Um, So sing. Sing because the curse has been lifted. Shout for joy. I don't know if you've ever been with a barren woman. I don't know if you've ever known someone that's infertile. And the joy that it was when they produced. Just the sorrow of the inability to be able to produce. But when God in His providence and His sovereignty Pours out a blessing on those people. I mean, just the shout that they have. They look at the pregnancy test and they don't believe it. They can't imagine. They've gone so long. It's been years. They're later in life. They've almost given up hope. God just blesses them with a son. God blesses them with a daughter. What do you think they'll do? They're going to (laughs) shout, they're going to sing. They're going to pick up the phone and they're going to call their mom and dad. They're going to tell everybody whom they love. They're going to make a public display. Why? Because what was impossible just became possible. What seemed unimaginable was now manifested in reality and thus it calls forth something. They understand that there's something in them that they could not do that was done beyond them. This is the idea only infinitely greater. Imagine an entire world Who is lost in sin, born in rebellion, just just uh, by nature children of wrath, walking against God, and 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 unless someone intervenes, there's going to be a barren womb. And then Jesus Christ enters in Isaiah chapter number fifty three, and he does the unthinkable. You know, like he enters in and he does what no man should ever have to do. God humbles Himself in the form of a servant and He makes Himself shares in their reality becomes and lays aside majesties and glory. Why? So that, 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 that this barren woman, that this, this bride, that, that this world could, could be fruitful, could enter into the blessings of the Lord. That's the idea. If you've ever shouted and praised God um, for, for, for the deliverance of a child, um, then, then your shout should be uh, infinitely greater because what is happening in this text is the salvation of all those who would believe in every generation, not only past, present, but a future. And they will, they will extol God and exalt Him for all eternity. Why? Because the barren woman conceived. God saved. And we have an entire world now of people that sit before us and, and, and throughout every nation um, that, that are partaking of the very labors of Christ the Messiah. Sarah should not have been able to give birth. She did. She did. And there's a spiritual Sarah, a spiritual Abraham, which continues to, to give birth even to this day. The so sing, shout, have joy. The people of God should be the most joyful people in all the world. You know, we should have not only a song in our heart but a praise in our lips. Why? Because this barren woman continues to conceive because God continues to extend his labors to another as their surety, as their as their husband. That's the idea. Not only do you see that but you see a call to action. You see a prophecy, you see a command to praise, and then you see a call to action. If that's the case, not only sing, but do, right? um, Isaiah chapter 54, enlarge the place of your tent, he says. And let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. You know what he says? He says the woman is going to conceive... The and woman, sing, shout, and guess what? It's not just one. It's enough to where I need you to expand the tent. This would have been unthinkable to Jerusalem. This would have been unthinkable to Israel. Jeremiah 10.20, you read these words, my tent is destroyed and all my cords... They're under the judgment of God. He goes on to say, My children have gone from Me, and they are not. There's no one to spread My tent again and to set up My curtains. For the shepherds are ignorant and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they've not prospered, and their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold, it comes. A great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. You know what he's saying? He said the tent is destroyed. His prophecy comes and he says, says the tent is not. What I want you to do is I want you to expand the tent. I want you to take it to its outside the borders. I want you to take it to where you can't even fathom It's almost like an infertile woman or someone who can't have child who's out house hunting. real estate agent comes and says, "What kind of house are you looking for?" A massive estate I get just out of curiosity who's going to live here uh, Just you and your, just me and my husband um A well, it, it, massive. So what I, I thought it was just going to be you and your husband, and it is initially, but we're looking forward to kids. Really, you're expecting? Oh no, I can't. The doctor says it's biologically impossible. I suffer from this or that, and the real estate agent says maybe it's just me, but I don't quite understand why you need such a large estate. You don't have to understand. Just sell the house, you know. Extend it. I remember looking for our house. You know, and we desired to have children, and we wanted to fashion it like that. We wanted to get something that was a little bit larger that could contain the future. And I don't know that we've contained the future that well. It's almost like we need to take walls as the boys begin to grow, and just break those walls down and build walls and bit more walls and more walls because we did not expect the blessing that the Lord would bring in the in our children. We don't deserve it. Um, it's just God's grace, but it's almost like we didn't we didn't think big enough. You know, that's what that's the idea here. You know. That there's this barren woman, but, but 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 know that this barren woman's going to conceive, and she's going to conceive in such a way that it will not be contained. It can't. It can't be contained in your little tent, in your little imaginations. So spread it out, lengthen the cords, strengthen the stakes, because the blessing that is coming to this woman is going to be immeasurable, immeasurable. Stretch it out. Rebirth is coming. Birth is coming. And I know that you can't see it now, but in faith, you are to prepare. To Jerusalem, this would have sounded ridiculous. Um, But to God's people, in faith, um, it should sound right in line with what He's doing. You know, this this is William Carey, the father of modern missions. This is his launching text in which he... Reading the Word of God and reading works by Jonathan Edwards, and, and he's just provoked by God that Jesus Christ deserves the nations and that He will receive the nations and He'll receive it by means of the preaching of the gospel. And he goes to a mission board and he goes to a bunch of stodgy old Baptists who say, "Son, if you want to reach the, if God wants to reach the nations, He'll reach them without you." He comes back not long after as he talks to other men and he's reading Jonathan Edwards and he's reading the Word of God and he comes back and he preaches this text and he he launches out to India and he and he launches a movement not only in his day but he launches a movement that would carry on throughout um, uh, the, the United Kingdom and even into the Americas and throughout all the world. Why? Because because he believed this text. Stretch out your tents. Jesus Christ deserves the nations. Jesus Christ died for the nations. The woman is barren, but she will bring forth as a result of Christ's work. They will enter into new labors. Thus He launched out. The the, the curse was lifted. He would enter into relationship with this person, um, this God. So you see there a a call, a command to to, to expand. You see the prophecy. You see the right response, which is praise. Why? Because um, the the impossible is possible when God is in it. Thus, you are to respond in in, in expanding your faith, in believing that God is able. So expand the tent. Strengthen the cords, Strengthen the stakes. Because what God is going to do is going to be immeasurable. Not only that, but the curse is lifted. Verse number four do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will remember the reproach of your you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your Maker is your husband. Your husband but along with this bride, along with this barren woman, came um, a shame and a reproach that was upon her because of her depravity, because of her wickedness, because of her. Here the illustration is her barrenness, which signified a, a curse from God. Why should we sing? Because God here says the curse is lifted, you know? You're not barren anymore. You're not a widow anymore. There was a reproach that came with it. There was approach that a reproach that came and a shame that came along with it. And God says to them, Sing, cry out, expand the tents, be ashamed no more. Why? Because your Maker is your husband. Your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Why is there no need to be ashamed? Because your Maker is your husband. Why is your widowhood not to be a reproach anymore? Why is your barrenness not to be a reproach anymore? Why should you not be ashamed? Because now you've entered into relationship and labors that are not your own. And the blessing is immeasurable. It cannot be contained. Jesus Christ is coming to accomplish something in this world and personally with you um, such there is nothing to be ashamed for. So get to action. Get to action. Why? Because your Maker is your husband. What a blessing of a statement. It's enamored me all week. All week. The marriage relationship between a husband and a wife and it's mere, a mere dim picture. As glorious as it is, and I could talk about marriage all day, talk to you about the blessing of having a wife. I could talk to you about and um, the blessing of just the, the, the union, just the, the intimacy, just the, the social, the companionship, and, and, and just, just what God has used it in my life to accomplish things in me, and just how it just transcends seemingly all of the relationships in this world. Um, it's, 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 it's better than than so many things and possibly anything that I have ever encountered in a relationship. And I think that infinitely more... <laughs> God says, I am your husband. He says to this barren woman. He says to to this this widow. He says to this one who is under reproach. He goes on to to speak of her like a woman forsaken with a grieved spirit, a a youthful wife that that, that was refused for just a moment. But great mercies, I I called you forth, he says. Um, I called you in verse 6. Like a woman forsaken called you out of that and into a world and into a realm of grace that is immeasurable such that you need to stretch out your borders because the blessing of God in so many ways is coming to your house simply by union and communion with Him. That's the idea. He says that He's the maker of His bride that all things were created by him and that includes he says for your maker your creator is your husband that that god is the um the instigator he's the creator he's the maker of this woman i mean he's made her and he's made her for a purpose Psalm 95, verse 6 says, Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Isaiah 43, 21 says, The people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 speaks of men who were dead, but are yet now alive, and they are his workmanship, created unto good works. Now what you see here is you see a bride and a bridegroom who have come together in union. Yet this bridegroom, this husband, is the maker of his bride. That He's the eternal wisdom of God. First uh, uh, Corinthians one, he's the wisdom and power of God in creation. John chapter one, he's the everlasting word who created all things, and not anything was created by him that was not created. Colossians chapter one, not only does he create all things, visible and invisible, but he sustains all things. Hebrews chapter one, he upholds all things. That he is the maker, that he is the Lord of hosts. That He is the Lord of the armies of, of the earth, but also of the heavens. He leads the angels. That this is the husband of this barren woman. This is the husband of this bride. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Verse 10, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Isaiah chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Who is this holy, holy, holy? He is the Lord of hosts. John chapter 12 and verse number 35 says that He had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw His glory. Whose? Christ's glory. There's no doubt in my mind that the glory that was seen in Isaiah chapter 6 that put Isaiah on his face and the cherubim in all of their perfection to cover their eyes, even in their innocence and in their own righteousness, couldn't, uh, the glory needed to be revealed, uh, needed to be veiled. And I'm convinced that, that, that who Isaiah saw there, who the angels bowed before and put Isaiah on his face was, was Christ and Christ alone. In Isaiah 6, there is a cry out, Holy, holy, holy to the Lord of hosts. That who we're speaking here of as the Maker um, of, of the world and the Maker of this bride and the Maker that is her husband is the Lord of hosts is His name and the Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel is none other than Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the Creator of all the earth. And He has out of that earth created a people for Himself who would be unto His praise. Who He would enter into union and communion with in a unique way. And which would be a blessing otherwise impossible and unthinkable this is the way paul talks ephesians chapter number 5 husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32 that wasn't really the point although it's a good point <laughs> the great mystery is i speak concerning christ and his church jesus christ has organized the marriage relationship in such a way and that, that 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 it's not an afterthought um, but that it was organized in such a way to reveal the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ and the love that He would have for His bride. Thus, He puts, puts a picture in the garden that will be sustained through time until eternity. That will proclaim the when, when rightly, when rightly organized, will proclaim the gospel message to a lost and a dying world because it speaks of a love that is that is that is outside of any other relationship in this world. The men here to be like Christ. And in some sense, you know you'll never be exactly and fully that. But at the same time, you have enough faith to believe that that at least some of the time, at moments, that I can be empowered with this Spirit in such a way to love her like like He loved the bride. You know, with sacrifice and with service and and with humility and with this and with that as we glean into that great mystery. That's the point. The point is not to be great men and the point is not to be um, um, better than and the point is not to be perfect and the point is... is 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 simply an outworking of the of the grace that God has extended to us as we 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 look at him and it makes us something that we're not something that we're not it's unfathomable isn't it? This bride is not brides like today that we would see and this bride is different. They don't look anything alike. They're not of the same social status. They're not in the same clubs. They don't do the same things. They don't walk in the same um, uh, arenas. They're not in the same crowds. They, they don't have the same hobbies. This bridegroom and this bride are totally different. You know? Um, he's pure and she's stained. He's glorious and she's not. And um, He's white and she's... Um, not and, and, and he's attractive and she's not. He's, uh, she, she's cast out in the fields and ready to, 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 to perish. He's fruitful and she's barren. He's a blessing and she's corrupted. She's helpless. She's forsaken. She's a widow with no one to take care of and she can't help herself. And, and the reality is is that she doesn't want to. She's not like a a bride who wants to be married to this glorious bridegroom. She's like a a prostitute um, who wants to and loves all other men except for this man. It's not the same. It makes no sense in some sense. Right? That Jesus Christ, this bridegroom, would enter into the world and love this woman at all. But He does and he does the extent where he Isaiah chapter fifty three, and you see the great love wherewith he loved her. And he gives his life a ransom that not only is he the the, the, the husband of this wife, but he is the redeemer. Right? He stands not only as her maker, but as a redeemer. The text says that the Lord of hosts is the is his name, and he is the holy one of Israel, the God of the whole earth. And if you're a Christ this morning, that, that, that he is your husband. And he's holy beyond measure. And He's the God of all the earth. He leads the angels of heaven. Yet at the same time, He's your Redeemer. That even in all of our lawlessness and even in all of our ill repute and even in all of our, our uncomeliness and even in all of our un- attractiveness and even in all of our impurities, like this One who comes and He covenants Himself with a people who were not His people and with a bride who was not His bride. And even in some sense, a bride that did not want to be. Again, you think of Boaz and Ruth. That Moabitess. Who he brings to himself and agrees to satisfy all the requirements of the law. Right? She was born an Israelite. She wasn't of the same nationality. She wasn't in the covenant. She was brought in through a legal representation of Boaz to, to, to not only to care for land, but to, but, but, but to care for her because he loved her. Um, They weren't of the same seed. They weren't of the same status. They weren't of the same society. Yet, He would pay the ransom in some sense. In some societies today, there's a dowry for marriage. Uh, For example, if a married man wanted to marry a woman, he would pay the father a price, a dowry. And once it's paid, the wedding is considered to be legal. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. Christ paid the debt to the Father, the debt of sin with His own blood. He paid an, an entire debt that it might freely bring Himself a bride to Himself. We are brought into union and communion with Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection through a, through a holy life such that um, as the Father accepts the payment for sin, it, the wrath of God is, is satisfied. In the, and now, now God remains the just, yet at the same time the justifier, the, 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 the forgiver of sins, the redeemer, the, the, the buyer back, the, the one who buys out of the world and makes them His own. The debt is paid, and we are brought into this legal union with Christ. Such that when the deed is read on that great day and the debt is counted, it will be counted zero. Why? Because it's paid in full. He's the redeemer of all those who will come to him by faith and repentance. He buys them out by his own blood. He enters into covenant. He sheds the covenant is inaugurated with his own blood, and he enters into covenant. Um, not only with God the Father, but with a people um, whom He binds Himself to as a husband does to his wife. And takes greater vows than we could ever read. But at the same time, those vows derive in, in, in phrases and in Scriptures like, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Um, and He binds Himself to this people not only for good, but also for bad. He binds Himself to this people to be the legal representative for the family. He stands as a surety. He stands as, as the one liable for all the debt. As a husband might with a wife. As they bind themselves together, legally, justice will demand what, what of one, but, but when demanded of one, it's demanded of both. A wife or a husband could accrue debts and the other one would be totally bound to that debt because of the relationship, the one fleshness of it. But they often act and represent one another. In this union, it is sometimes bad. In that union, it's always good. Jesus Christ stands as our legal representative who has paid all the debt and forgiven all sins that we might enter into relationship with Him. Thus, we can stand firm and stand holy and righteous before a, for a holy God on that day, accepted in the Beloved. Therefore, we could sing with great joy and glory unspeakable. But not only is this union legal, it's also living. It's also alive. It's it's not only objective in the sense that it gets you a ticket to heaven because he's your legal representative. It's also a real union. It's a vital union. It's a living union. It's not only objective; it's subjective. Um, it's not only theoretical or technical; um, it's experiential. It's intimate. It's personal. The two shall become one flesh. In other words, there's a shared life between them. You know, there's a legal aspect to my wife's and my union that in the sight of courts and in justice and for tax purposes and for this or that, I'm the legal representative and we are bound together. When the law looks, they see us as one. But that's not really why I married her. (laughs) You know? i married her more for the real union, for the living union, the shared life, the time together, the growth with one another, the influence over one another. To the point that due to one another's life together, we, we, we change one another. I am a different man today than I was 15 years ago. And of course, that's all of Christ, but in some sense, Christ has used my wife as a means by which He has made me more like Himself. And not only am I more like Himself, I'm more like her. In some ways, she's more like me. We begin to look like each other. We begin to think like each other. We begin to eat like each other. We begin to parent like each other. We begin to do all these things. Why? Because of a shared life together. That our union and our communion is not only legal, but it's also also living. It's real. It's a life together. It's more than just on paper. And we communicate via email every once in a while, every couple months. No, it's real. It's personal. There's touches and influences and experiences by by, by which I have been changed. And by which she has been changed. And this too is the reality of your husband, and your wife. But even more than that, that's also the reality of Christ and His bride. That, that in some sense, there is a legal union. But at the same time, there is a living union. That Christ truly lives with us and He lives in us. And that, that, that Paul is right when he says in a multitude of counts in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and other places that you are in Christ. But Paul could also say, Christ is in me, the hope of glory. I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. You know? Hosea 2.19, prophesying of the Messiah says, I'll betroth you to me forever. It's yes, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, legal, but also in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. That, you, that, that we are to know Him legally and academically and theologically, but at the same time, Um, The God of heaven and earth enters into a real covenant with you. And in that covenant, um, there is a personal experiential relationship in which the Spirit operates to bring you to Himself. Thus, we can say faithfully and accurately and really, um, Christ is in me. And today, Christ was with me. And today, His presence was among us. And that today, I abided in Christ. And at the same time, you can say, I don't know where He's been in weeks. I haven't been with Him. You know? In some sense, you can feel His true presence, yet at the same time, you can, you can know His true absence. Right? Like going on a trip as a husband and being away for three days, which I did a few days ago. And it's different. You know she's gone. You know she's there. But at the same time, she's not. You know? And while it was necessary, it was different. That that that, that Christ enters into a covenant with us and communion with us um, such that He is truly and really with us, right? We're in vital union, living. It's one thing to have a birth certificate by which we prove our existence. It's a whole other thing to have blood flowing through our veins and air in our lungs and a cry out when a baby is born. It's one thing to, 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 be, uh, to, to know, and it's another thing to, to know and to believe and to live. And I thought about that this week in my own life. As I struggle throughout life, and I, and I and I try to be faithful, and I seek the Lord, and I do this, and I do that, in so many areas of life, and and you confide in people, and they come up to you, and they just say, "Christ is all sufficient." I know that. But there's a difference between knowing that and believing that. There's a difference between between Christ knowing Christ is all sufficient and believing that Christ is all sufficient. Um, There's a way in which knowing that you're married legally, and there's a difference with being with your wife, sharing in that life, understanding, changing, growing. That's the nature of the Christian life. He is our husband. And he is with us. We are to abide in him as he abides in us. I think it's Colossians chapter number three that gives us somewhat of an illustration of that, right? That if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. When was I raised with Christ? I know that I was technically, but was I really? Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died. When? In Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then who you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth fornication and cleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, because of the things the wrath of God is coming upon. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sins of disobedience, which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now... You yourselves are to put off all these. Why? Do not lie to one another and put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Put on in verse 12 kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another. if anyone has, com- has, has complained against you, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also uh, do. But all of these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And may the peace of God rule in your hearts to that which you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And Whatever you do, do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That in that you see somewhat of a summary of the Christian life. That this is who we are. And because of who we are legally, it affects who we are really. And that because God is there, but, but, and not just because God is there, but because God is also here, that there is a true living union as the Spirit of God lives and dwells in you. Um, that He is to change you as you abide in Him and as He abides in you. In 2 Peter 1.4, um, by them, what the promise is, you might become partakers of the divine nature. And now for this really reason, you are partakers of the divine nature, that there is a living union. That He is your husband not only means that He is your husband legally and your representative, but that He is your husband really. And that you have a shared life. You walk together, you talk together, you live together. In some sense, you grow together. Paul says you're fellow laborers with him. Um, And that's why you sing. (laughs) Right? The unthinkable. He did the unthinkable. He did the unthinkable. He did the impossible. You know, we learn that Christ is all sufficient. That He is our bridegroom, He is our provider, He is our protector, He is our, our, our sustainer of souls, and He'll He'll give it like we know that, don't we? You know that this morning. I don't need to tell you that. We're all good Christians, we understand doctrine. But I'm asking you do you believe that? You know? I don't know that I believe that on a lot of days. You know how I know that I don't believe that on a lot of days? I don't walk with Him in the, on a lot of days. What I mean by that is, is that, 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 that God with us is really with us. But one of the primary ways He's with us is through His Word, right? That God's presence is mediated to us through what we would refer to as means of grace. That God, um, God, God really truly meets with us. Like I, I can say with confidence today as I leave here that God's presence was among us. We, we learn that in the Scriptures. Where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst. I know that has a certain context, but it's true, right? Paul could say that, 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 that Christ was among you in the preaching of the Gospel to Galatians in which Christ probably never set foot there. That, that Christ shares with us in the communion table as we partake of Him. right? In baptism, He's present. In preaching, He's present. In prayer, He's there as we enter in boldly to the throne room of grace. He's in his word as we take it. That's what John 15 is really all about. Abide in me as I abide in you. You know, live in the word, and I will live in you, and your joy shall be full without measure. It'll be to the brim, it'll be to the top that when we speak of communing with Christ in a real vital type of way, in a living type of way, and we really truly mean that God is all sufficient, what we mean is, is that we are living with Him because He is living through us as His Word is vitally taking root in our hearts. You know? I, I say it all the time. Christ is all sufficient. But, 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 but I live the week like He's not. And I don't cling to His Word. I don't, I don't run to His Word. I don't feed on His Word. Right? Because, because if, you're not, if the Word is not in you and you're, you're not abiding in Him, the Spirit is not operating in such a way to take that Word and, and, and utilize it for eternal things. You know, that when you sit down and you're, you're broken down and you're discouraged and you're sorrowful, you, know, you don't need somebody to come up behind you and say, Christ is sufficient. You know that. What you need to do is to practice the sufficiency of Christ as it is meted out in His presence. You need to be in the church. You need to be among the people of God. You need to be in the Word. You need to be feeding on Him daily. You need to be taking the Lord's table. You need to be witnessing baptisms. You need to be spending time in prayer. A person who says to me that Christ is all-sufficient, I know people today that I've never heard one time say Christ is sufficient. And I know that they believe He is. You know why? Because they're the godliest people that I've ever seen in my life. They're in the Word every single day. Um, they're feeding on Him. Just like I, I've i never seen some of you tell your wife you love her. But I know you do. I've never seen some of you say to your, your, your husband, you know, I love you and this is what I would do. I wasn't there at your, your marriage. I wasn't there at your, 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 your legal union. I wasn't there as you made covenant with each other. But I could say beyond a shadow of a doubt, that person loves that other person. Why? Because it is publicly displayed and the service that they have with one another, the way they lean on one another, the way they share life together, the way that they cook for one another, the way that they, 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 they touch one another, the way that they are, are affectionate one to another, the way that they carry themselves in their homes, that you can look and you can just see the love of Christ abounds in them. I don't necessarily need to hear them say, I love them to know that they love them. And I know, I've never seen some people say, I love God, but I know it. Every one of us today would say, and I, but I've also seen some people who say, "I love my wife," and it's not all too clear. You know, they spend more time out doing this thing or that hobby, or or or, or and they spiritualize it or they moralize it, and they say, "I'm doing it for the family." No, you're not. You're doing it for yourself. You know, that true love is shared life together. It's being with one another. It's service. It's humility. It's it's this. It's that. It's more than just a banner, it's more than just a, 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 a show. It's more than just a slogan, you know? Uh, don't prove your love necessarily and only, don't prove it only by your words, but prove it by your actions. And th- That's the point, really of my sermon. <laughs> I just started back this week at, at the, the, the Maker is Your Husband and just meditating and just on that and thinking of my own life and, and, and thinking about, about just, just difficulties and trials and just um, a lack of rest in the soul and just turmoil and, and, and a number of other things. I was just so encouraged by the reality that Christ is my husband <laughs> in some individual sense and in some corporate sense, not only to me, but to all of us. And that by, but but at the same time, I had to ask myself, as I often ask myself in my own relationship with my wife, you know, am I really living life with her? You know, is Christ truly sufficient? Is he? You know. Are we truly abiding in Him? And maybe at some point I thought, why is there just such a lack of joy in my soul? These questions, the self-examination's hard, but it often leads to roads, right? Read John 15. He says, abide in me and I'll abide in you. He says, We're like a vine with branches, and, and as and I'm paraphrasing, but as as my, my life comes into you, he says, Your joy makes you it will be full. You know? You read Isaiah chapter fifty four, and you just see the outburst and public display of the of the of the rejoicing of God's people, of his majesty and his glory. And you wonder where's that in my life? Because if I know this, why don't I, why, don't I, why, don't I, why don't I believe this like this? You know? Like I know that He abides. And if I abide in Him and He abides in me, I know that. But at the same time, it's clear that by the lack of these other things, that I can't be doing that necessarily Faithful. And then you ask yourself, am I truly communing? Am I truly abiding? Do I truly have a right understanding of the Gospel presently in this life? Am I, am I truly with Christ? Is He truly with me? Or have I been on a, a vacation for the last two months? No, I, I know He's there, but He's really not. You know? Are you communing with Christ? Can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt this morning that my Maker is my husband? And say it in more of a more than just a legal sense. We rejoice in that. In the reality that that He is um, our legal representative, and on the basis of His life, it is attributed to us, and He stands as our head and our representative, and we have a good and a right standing with God as long as He stands. But at the same time, is there a, a vital union with God this morning? Is Christ all sufficient? Are you abiding in Him? Is your joy full? Are you publicly displaying with your your lips, but also with your life, devotion to Him in a living way because He is in you and you are in Him and the Spirit is operating through the Word. When trials and difficulties come throughout the week, you know? Are you simply um, spiritualizing things and almost um, resorting to pagan ideologies by, by quoting an incantation, uh, Christ is all-sufficient, Christ is all-sufficient, thinking that that's going to, to, to bestow the presence of God upon you because you said Christ is all-sufficient. Or is He? And that's evidence by, by waking up in the Word and going to bed in the Word and clinging to the promises. Looking to Him in a real, vital way. Communing with God in in, in fellowship and in prayer and running to Him in the Word when you're depressed, when you're angry, when you're bitter, when your relationships aren't good. Where do you run? Do you run inside or do do you run to Him? Is your Maker this morning your husband? Do you know what it's like to have a glorious marriage with the Maker and Creator of all the heavens and the earth? Do we understand this morning, not only as individuals, but as a church, what it means that Christ is all-sufficient? Are we organizing and leading the church in such a way um, that, 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 that He is preeminent? Are we feeding on Him daily and looking to Him weekly and striving after Him and pursuing Him in a real way? Is He all-sufficient? Or do we need to do other things? You know, Do we need to strive like Sarah and Abraham Who didn't believe the promises of God and organized Hagar to bring in the promise seed? I think on a lot of days that's the way we're living life, you know? By the arm of the flesh and by the skill of the intellect and by the height of the mind and by the latest technology and the latest methodology, is, is Christ truly sufficient? Is he all that you need? Is He all that you have? Do you understand what it means? I, I've had people ask me, I don't know how to explain marriage. I really don't. I don't know how to explain the Christian life. I really don't. Um, not in an exhaustive type of way. But I can tell you that it is; those two things are the greatest blessing of my life. Um, And we have much to rejoice about this morning in Christ. And I would just ask you this morning, are you in Christ? And is He in you? Because if He's not, then He stands before you as the great bridegroom and extends His hand to you. And says, "Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest." And that's more than just academic; he literally, really, means it. That when you come to him, he comes to you in a real way through the Spirit of God and the power of the Word, in such a way that he truly gives you rest and fills your heart with joy. Is that you this morning? If not, I beg you and implore you to come unto Christ, all you that labor and heavy laden, and He will give you rest. And maybe you're just a weary Christian like Abraham and Sarah, just waiting on the promises of God and it's getting hard. It's getting difficult and you're wondering if He's even there. I beg you this morning not to pursue Hagar. Not to live according to the flesh. But to stay the course, to persevere, to endure... And to run to Christ. That He is sufficient. How do I know that I believe He's sufficient? I'm practically living out the Christian life day in and day out by running to His Word, by running to fellowship, by running to prayer, by leaning on His Spirit, and not my own flesh. Is that you this morning? Some of you it is. Maybe some of you not. Amen. I beg you to run to Him this morning. Um, I don't know what else to... I'm at the end of myself on some things. You know? I'll be honest with you. And I don't know what to do. And Christ is just urging me to run to Him. And that looks like just going to the Word, going to prayer, running to the people of God, finding Him. And I trust that He said, if you seek Me, you'll find Me. And that He won't hide His face from Me. Your husband would not do that. And if he would, he's not much of a husband at all. But Jesus Christ stands as the great husband of the bride bride this morning. I'm ready to fellowship at any moment. And if you've been apart from Him, I want to urge you, encourage you, exhort you to run to Him. And let us run to Him now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the privilege it is simply to pray. Father, it is so wonderful just to talk to You. Is to talk to you. Not in a legal sense and not in an academic sense, but in a real sense. To come to you, Father, as a as a wife to a husband, knowing that you always hear, and knowing that you always care. Knowing that you always have, Father, unlike earthly husbands. That You have perfect knowledge. Um, that Your Son in Him dwells all wisdom and perfection. And that when we come to Him, we can never fail to come. but We never fail in, in receiving what we need. That Christ truly is all-sufficient. So help us, Father, in the days to come to lean on Him more. Father, fill our hearts with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Father, show us Christ and Him unmeasured in majesty and glory. Father, use Him in the Gospel picture in our lives to push us on to Christ and service and to our wives and our children and to this world lost and dying. Father, help us to understand the Gospel in such a way. That we sing and shout for joy and break forth with song. We expand our tents believing that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That, that, that we carry no more shame and we carry no more guilt. That the curse has been lifted because, and, and, and that we can do this because God our Maker is our husband. Because He's covenanted with us and let us not only believe that in our minds, Father, but let us believe that Really experientially. And may it manifest itself in a life and a devotion to Christ in this world as we continually run to You like this in prayer. Father, give me more of a heart of prayer. Father, when I wake up, would You provoke me to prayer? Father, before I lie down, would You provoke me to prayer? Father, as I go throughout the world on a daily basis and I I don't know what to do, would You aid me, Father, in in provoking me to prayer by Your Spirit? God, would You give me more of a hunger and a desire for the Word? May it be my food and my sustenance. sustenance Father, may it be the necessary food on a daily life. May it be like honey to the tongue. May it be, Father, that which I rejoice in. And may it be that which I hide in my own heart that I might not sin against Him. Father, help me not um, when I'm struggling to, to run inside myself, Father, but to run to God. And to run to the people of God and to seek their counsel, Father, and their encouragement and their exhortations. Father, help me to run to the table on the Lord's day and the Lord's supper. Father, help me run to Christ in, in my baptism. Father, in remembering what he did and that he, was de- that he was died and he was buried and that he rose again and I'm to rise with him and I'm to walk in newness of life. Father, help me not only to say that Jesus Christ is all sufficient, but help me to believe it. And may all the world know publicly that Damon Joseph believes that Christ is all-sufficient. Not that I might receive any accolades, Father. But that they may know that Jesus Christ is my God, the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, my Redeemer, and my husband. May my love and devotion to Him be paramount, such that He is forever remembered in their minds and that we are all quickly forgotten. May He be the measure of us as men. May He be exalted in our lives. And may He be made known to the nations. And may we sing when they come, because this barren woman enters into the labors of another. May the nations receive Christ today because he's worthy as Christ has preached throughout the world. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.